the One Two Football Podcast. The voices of tomorrow here today. Hey guys, welcome back to the One Two Football Podcast. I'm Nathan. I'm joined today by Ollie and Kieran. You alright? Hello. Today we have a special edition of the podcast as we interview Alan Tong about his career, including all things Manchester United, Exeter City, his career-ending injury and much more. Let's get into it. Okay, so welcome Alan. You're your first ever person to actually come onto the podcast. It isn't us three just bittering and going on about random stuff, so welcome. If you'd like to tell everyone a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um... Just going back a long time. I'm getting, I'm getting older, older and older every every sort of uh, year that passes by. So seems to be a long time ago. I was coming out of school, um, went into United as an apprentice, uh, stayed there for three seasons. Nineteen, got uh, moved on. Unfortunately, went down to Exeter City, uh, stayed there till I was mid twenties. Unfortunately, I had a really bad injury to me back. And then from that, transitioned out, um, went to uh, do a few bits and pieces, just try to keep my hand in here and there. And eventually, I just found my way back into education and I went back to do a degree. I was quite old, quite old at the time, 28 when I did mine. And I think it was one of the best decisions I ever made because you know, it got me on a, a path and a journey into another area. So. So here we are, sort of 15, 16, 17 years later. I'm still teaching, still lecturing away, and uh, you know, just to, just trying to uh, just keep us upbeat and as and as happy as I, as as I can, like everybody else at the moment. You had a very interesting career, um, simply put. So we'll start off right at the start with Manchester United, and I have to open with this question. I saw that you claim to be Sir Alex Ferguson's first ever signing. I know Viv Anderson also claims the same. So do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, in a, in a stereotypical, traditional uh, kind of trivial pursuit question, you know, Viv Anderson will be on there because he was the first signing that that there was a fee paid for, you know, that Sir Alex had recruited his um, his first addition to to his uh, his squad. But if you rewind a little bit, let's let's just go back a little bit to 1986 when Sir Alex arrived in November. I went on trial at the Christmas of that year, um, around the end of December, early January. And following that successful trial, Sir Alex offered me uh, schoolboy forms and a two-year apprenticeship, which I put pen to paper on. Um, I think it was around mid-January, something like that. And I've still got the, the slip and the form to this day. So until anybody can prove me otherwise, I'm going to stick my flag in and say I was the first non-fee signing of Sir Alex's and Viv can claim the first fee signing. How was that? It's a very big claim to fame. <laughs> I'm sure everyone would love to have that. But So how old were you when you actually did, you know, first sign? And what was that like for you being so young to be, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson? Obviously, he wasn't the big household name necessarily that he is now, but um, it didn't have the trophies under his belt as he did now. But still, massive achievement. How were you feeling? Yeah, amazing, really. I mean, you know, always had a a flavour and some some flavour of talent, you know, from my schoolboy years and, you know, coming through grassroots teams and playing in in my town side and my county side. So I've always had that pedigree there and, 
you know, how it used to work, Oliver, back then is they used to get um, uh, scouts coming round to watch the grass, grassroots game. I know that the game's very, very different now because of the age categories that have, have, have really shifted. And United had a school of excellence set up, but it was it was around 13, 14 years old before you went into a, a club to train. Whereas these days you've got pre-academies, you know, youngsters are going in at five, six, seven, eight years old, under nine to start the sort of training side. So, so yeah, we, we had a, uh, a scout come down to a county game uh, to watch Greater Manchester play Cheshire. And after that game, it, it was a lad called Joel Brown, who was the youth development officer at the time. And a lad called Tony Collins. Unfortunately, we, we lost Tony uh, over this last few weeks. Um, uh, he, they, they approached me, mum and dad, after the game and said, would Alan like to come down on trial? So that, that was, you know, the, the sort of trial I was talking about uh, over the Christmas period. And uh, at the end of that trial, I played really well. Uh, it was quite a thrill. It was one of them situations where everything seemed to go right. I was down there for a week, uh, plenty of practice matches, lots of little training sessions. I was joining in with the reserves and things like that, even though I was only 15 years old. So, um, you know, it was a massive, massive thrill that after that, they, they sort of offered me something that, that I knew that when I'd be finishing school, and I'd completed my GCSEs. I'd be going into to United to train full time as an apprentice. So yeah, so so hugely exciting, Oliver. Massive achievement. I'm really so so pleased because we're all United fans in the family. My dad, um, you know, followed United right through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, right up to the modern day. So it was a great a great thrill for him, and uh, just just one of them moments that you know you can recall and reflect upon and. And just have a little smile and think, you know, what, what, what an incredible feeling that was. Arriving home at the end of the trial week and saying to me mum and me dad, you know, United have offered me uh, schoolboy forms and an apprenticeship and, and they, want, they want to sign me. Have you ever had a trial before that or was that your first ever trial with a football club? Yeah, I've been I've been down to Bolton. I've been down to Bolton Wanderers. They went wanted to sign me. I've been down at the other side of Manchester, Man City. Uh, they they offered me terms as well, so you, you, the the advice back then, Oliver, I kept hearing don't sign anything, don't sign anything. But you know it, it's difficult because like when United offer you something, you know it, it's, it's a case of well, it's my boyhood club, and you know you know I'm not going to say I'm, I think I'll wait a season or two to see how it goes. But you know it's almost like give us the pen and sign us. So um, so yeah, so there was a few other clubs interested at the time. Um, as there were with a quite a lot, of, a lot of other young players in the grassroots system. Um, so, yeah, so when United offered, it was, uh, you know, like passing the pen and let's go. Obviously, playing football is every, well, a lot of boys' dreams growing up. So was it actually like, was that your actual aim? Did you always say, I want to be a footballer? Or was it up until the point where you got a trial, it was more just sort of a dream? And then when you started getting trials, it was like, this could actually be something? It's a great question, Oliver, and something that probably I, I get asked quite a bit, and that is that, you know, coming through the schooling system and, you know, playing and, like I said, grassroots, county, town teams, and then going into clubs. I, I also had a reasonably strong educational and academic identity as well. I, I didn't mind school. I enjoyed school. Uh, I particularly enjoyed English and, um, you know, my, my kind of background really was in you know, I really enjoyed writing stories and bringing stories to life, and you know, and I enjoyed different the different um, topics that we looked at at GCSE. So, so <laughs> bizarrely and a little bit strangely, like a lot of stereotypical footballers who kind of give up their education because they think, well, I'm going into football, so it doesn't matter. I kind of stuck at mine. Um, so, 
So would I say I enjoyed football? Yes, but I had like another kind of interest and another sort of side to me as well that, that I didn't mind. So I kind of, I, I suppose, entered the footballing world with a with a nice little mix. Well, you say you like writing. If you ever want to write an article for one, two, three. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Next question. So Bergson is obviously a legend of the game. Um, you got to know him more so than most. What was he like with the youth players, but also just as a person? Yeah, he was kind of like, because he'd arrived at United from Aberdeen, where he'd been doing quite well. He, you know, he'd managed to break the stranglehold on the, you know, the Celtic Rangers dominance by by taking Aberdeen to the title. And, he, and he'd managed to, to land a couple of trophies, I think like a Scottish FA Cup and things like that, which was quite remarkable. Um, he came down to United in November 86, I think a little bit of, a pressure on him because United were still chasing that kind of elusive title that that they'd not had for many many years. Um, so all the kind of pressure was on in relation to that's what they wanted delivering off him. And and I think for a spell, you know, up to 1990, I you know he, he was kind of like coughing and spluttering a bit. You know, there was an infamous um, banner that was sort of unfurled at Old Trafford, which said "Tara Fergie," uh, full of excuses. You know, time to go or something. So. So it kind of like wasn't happening for him straight away. Um, so I was kind of like in a funny time. I think our crop and our group was kind of still in the rebuild almost. Uh, I always joked with my mum and dad and said I was born a year or two early, too early because if they'd have hung on and maybe waited till about 74 when I was born instead of 72, I might have been in that crop of that class of 92. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> Uh, I, might, I might have ended up in that lot. So I think I was born a couple of years too early, but that's that's destiny, I suppose, isn't it, and fate? So, But yeah, um, a complete winner. Um, he always kind of uh, was interested in the youth side, the youth the youth um, development side, um, bringing players through. Uh, and just, just a very, very passionate man. Um, you know, he used to play Ed Tennis with the assistant manager called Archie Knox, and he'd bring all the youngsters into the gym. And he, he wouldn't he wouldn't let you stop playing until they won. So it could be going like four o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock, you know. And until they'd won, he'd say, "Right, that'll do you." And that could be like half seven. I think I've got to get home for my tea, you know. And I'm playing, but that that's kind of how he was. He hated losing at stuff, and and um, yeah, he, you know, from from what he from what he went on to do was quite incredible. Like from sort of early nineties right through to to sort of when he retired. I think he, he had about twenty. Was it 26 years, Sir Alex? Like in, in charge of a Premier League club, is like I know Arsene Wenger come close to it, but I think that's quite remarkable, isn't it, for anyone to, to do that? You mentioned the class of '92. That is, that was going to be my last question. So, but I'll do it now anyway. It must be a bit frustrating looking back and thinking, you know, what you just missed out and on all the success they got. I know you said in the previous interview, it's not about the money for you, but the success and you know having that experience and winning all those titles that you just so closely just missed out on must be quite, you know, frustrating to look back on. Yeah, it's, it's like anything else, Oliver. You, you know, things take time. I think, you know, the French did it, I think, with that Claire Fontaine, you know, in, in relation to building youth players and then trying to win the World Cup a few years later. It doesn't happen immediately. And I think myself and a lot of other youngsters who were with me at the time probably just felt a little bit shortchanged in that. In that we'd done all right. We was winning all the junior leagues. We won a prestigious tournament in Italy called the Grossi Marrera Tournament. Um, we'd managed to get to a quarter-final of the FA Youth Cup in my first year as an apprentice, a semi-final in the second year as an apprentice, and 
we played Spurs in in the in this in the semi final and we we absolutely hammered and we we lost two 0 in the first leg but when they come to Old Trafford for the second leg we peppered them. Uh, young Giggsy was in the the youth team at the time and we had a few he had a few one on ones and it's in the post it's in the bar and we we ended up drawing one one and we we couldn't quite turn the tie around so it makes you wonder that if that had happened that year that we'd have won the FA Youth Cup. You know, which United were chasing for quite a number of years. You know, you're thinking to yourself, you know, would it have been a bit, a little bit different? Would a lot of our, of our crop got chances in the first team? But unfortunately, that's didn't happen. Uh, destiny, fate, whatever you want to call it, and and um, you know that was left to the glory of the class of '92. Picked the FA Youth Cup up a couple of years later, and then went went on to do some unbelievable things. You mentioned there that you played with um, Giggsy. Um, and so my next question is, obviously you played with and you trained with a lot of big name players. What are the biggest names that we'll be envious of that you trained with and you got to play with? Yeah, well, you know, United in sort of the mid-80s, late late 80s, had lads like Brian Robson, Norman Whiteside, Paul McGrath. Um, they had lads like Steve Bruce arrived, uh, Dennis Irwin, um, Lee Sharp, Andre Konchelskis. Mark Bosnich, um, just a sea, just a sea of, of, of class players like great names, um, Gary Pallister, uh, some 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 high quality players, Mark Hughes, Gordon Strachan, <laughs> Brian McClare. So uh, really really good pros, and it was really really interesting to play to play and train alongside those guys, just to see a close up um, how how good they were, and you know when you used to get asked to go and step into the first team maybe for training. It was always always really tricky because you had to be like very very sharp. Um, players close you down a lot quicker, and your brain had to work quicker. So I think that was quite demanding sometimes. But you know, it, it was good to see it close up. And there's, you know, we talk about levels and transitions between youths under 18s, under 23s, and the first team. It's quite a big step than a, a lot more than people think between the under-23s in the first-team environment or the under-18s in the first-team environment. You know, it's quite wide in relation to physicality, psychology, you know, your social, your personality. It's very, very different. Because you could be Mr Big in the academy, you know, the main man scoring all the goals and then you go into the first-team environment and you're right at the bottom of the pole almost. You've got all these internationals around you, lads who have played 300, 400, 500 games. And uh, it's a, you know, it's a massive cha- challenge to your identity. You know, you've got to grow up quickly and you've got to step up quickly. And, you know, that's, a, that's it in football. Chances are very, very rare. And if you, if you get a chance and you don't take them up, make the most of it, you know, it, it can be difficult to get a chance again because it's so competitive. You said there about the big leap up from um, each stage of football. But who, when you were there, did you think, you know, it's going to go on to become, you know, a really big and big success in the game? Well, young Giggsy was the main person, really, and he was kind of the, the lad who, who sort of impressed the most coming through, you know, like the, the sort of youth games and the, and the sort of A team, and the, it was like different, a bit different back then, the structures. So, yeah, like a bit, the B team was the first team that you started playing for at United. They were kind of like, it was under 18s, but more 16, 15, 16, 17 year olds in that side. And then the A team was the kind of the next step, which was kind of like Eric Harrison was the, the youth team manager and he looked after the A team. So that was like your first kind of step into open age football because you could be like 16, 17, 18 playing against like men. So that, that was a real challenge. And then from there, you had like, it was something called the old Central League where you got like lads who were not playing in the first team and step into the reserves. 
So you'd have like a mix of, of pros, young pros and, and first team players, which was again really competitive. Um, so yeah, so it was it was quite an interesting transition, like you know, going up going up those stages. But but yeah, just going back to your question, uh, Giggs, he was like that he stood out the most. He was he was like different class. Um, first saw him around 14 uh, in the School of Excellence. And Eric Harrison said, like, look at this player here, he's gonna be some player. And it didn't really mean a lot to me at the time because he's only thin small, uh, he didn't carry any weights, you know, he's, he's like tiny and you're thinking like, I, I don't understand that, like, this is lad's going to be some player because I was only like young, young lad myself. But uh, Eric's judgment wasn't wrong, was he? He was spot on on that one, you know, to go on and play like 963 games and, you know, like Premier Leagues, FA Cups, Charity Shields, Champions Leagues, he, he's done it all right, Annie, and uh, you know what an unbelievable career. So like, he'd be probably the main one that, that kind of stood out, but Alongside Ram, we had a, a little fella called Lady Doherty as well. He was like, Ollie Kays wrote a book about him called Forever Young. He was another lad who was standing out. And you, you think about pathways of, you know, these thin tight ropes, these, these thin paper thin lines that you're walking on. You know, that was one that he didn't quite work out for Adrian. And a lot of the, the staff and supporters who followed the junior teams thought he was as good as Ryan Giggs coming through the system. And his first team opportunity was just going to sort of not be far away and he got a bad knee injury, done his cruciate ligaments in and it didn't work out. He drifted away from football uh, and unfortunately he died in, in his kind of like his mid-late 20s uh, in, a, in a tragic accident. So, you know, you talk about agony and ecstasy and ups and downs and, you know, and if buts and maybes, you know, there's two like classic cases really running alongside each other. That's, that's a great shame. But you talk about sort of, you know, getting praise. And I read an interview in the Manchester Evening News about you where you said that you were playing for a reserve game against Manchester City in which you pipped them to winning the Lancashire League Division 1 title by one point. And Alex Ferguson singled out you for praise. What was that moment like? That must have been the highlight of your career. It would be for me anyway. What was that like? Yeah, it was a weird one, that one, Oliver, because... <laughs> We've been chasing City down all season, nip and tuck, and it got to the end of the season. A few games have been called off, and we had four in the last week. So we had to play Saturday, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Saturday. So we won the Saturday, we won the Tuesday, won the Thursday. So it had come down to a, like a, a sort of winner-takes-all game at Platt Lane, which is City's old training ground. And and the, this is like the really, really like ups and downs of football. So we managed to beat them 2-1. We won the league, fantastic. After the game, Sir Alex singled me out for praise and said, like, you've done fantastic because they had a young uh, quality winger that were playing for City that morning called Jason Beckford. He went to play on, in the first team for him. And um, yeah, I'd done OK, you know, I'd, 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 I'd done well. He'd not had really a kick and, you know, I'd, I'd played, I'd had a good game. So that was fantastic praise. Anyway, in the sort of Tuesday or the Wednesday of that week afterwards, Sir Alex had called me up in, into the... Um, his office at the cliff and said and said to me we're not going to renew your contract we're going to have to move you on so you know like from going from that and getting the praise on a Saturday to going from like your world falling to bits on the Wednesday was like a bit surreal and a bit difficult to comprehend so but you know it's life it happens you take the rough with the smooth the ups and the downs because that's what football is it's just peppered with them and uh, that was it it was time to kind of you know, the United journey had, had come to a shuddering halt and a, I was only 19 at the time, unfortunately. So still still a relatively young lad. 
that, that is going to be my next question. So I'll just make you touch on that a bit. Were you told why you were released? Because obviously, like you said, a couple of days prior, you were being, you know, rant and raved about by Sarah Alex himself. So there must have been a reason. Was it something to do with the club or was it just, what was it? He just said that. It's, the reason was, I mean, it's different now because like with performance analysis in the modern day, you can probably get a lot more uh, breakdown of your performances, which, you know, a lot... A lot of the performances back then were just by observation. You like coaches' opinions of what they were seeing. You know, there was there was recordings of games, but you know they were on on the old VHS tapes, and there was no analysis or looking. Let's have a look at the, you know, the game again. And you you had seventy percent possession. Your passing was twenty out of twenty two, and all that sort of stuff that we see in the modern day. So from an informed perspective, it just goes on opinion. And he just said that. He said we just feel as though you. You lack a yard of pace to sort of get into con- first team contention and stay in first team team contention. But the bizarre thing is, is like when I went to Exeter and started like my career moving again. Like Paula said, you're pretty sharp, aren't you? And then I don't know, like a, a couple of um, uh, years ago, a year and a half ago, I had a little podcast with Ryan Giggs, and uh, and uh, one of the one of the, like the listeners' questions was like, what was Alan Tong like as a player? And Ryan, like he had a bit of a think, and he said, "I oh, said he was decent. He said you was you wasn't rapid, rapid, but you could certainly handle yourself pace wise. So you're getting like a view from Ryan saying like you were okay in that, but then Sir Alex saying like you lacked a yard. So it it's all opinions, isn't it? This is it with young people and young players. And if you do get a knockback or you get a deselection, you know, just take it as if okay, and just just keep doing what you're doing because." Because ultimately, it's just one person's view of you, and you know that's that's the way it goes in sport. You know, it's full of opinions, especially with social media. I'm sure you guys are jumping on social media quite regularly, and you see it in, in, a, in, a, in a on a regular basis. It's just opinion city, isn't it? All the time, everyone's views on what managers should be doing, what teams they should be playing, what what formations they should be playing. And it, it it gets crackers, doesn't it? The the world and his wife has an opinion these days, but but yeah, you know it hurt. It was tough. That was a difficult thing to take because I've been at the club since I was fourteen, fifteen. I'd got there for like to nineteen, four or five seasons. So yeah, that was a real, real difficult time to to sort of try and get over. I mean, that's not a bad opinion to have had by Ryan. Um, seems like quite a nice one to have. I'd be delighted with that opinion from Ryan Giggs. Um, he's just touched on it again. So this should ease us into the next uh, set of questions for the ex-City sort of career. But what was it like for you? Obviously, you said you were 19. What was it like for you and your family when you were released? Obviously, you were on such a high. You were in Man United's academy. And then all of a sudden, your world came tumbling down sort of out of nowhere in a way. Yeah, it was it was very tough. Um, you know, like Sir Alex had said, there have been a couple of clubs interested. Um, he said Notts Forest were having a lot Leicester City. So I was playing like quite a quite a few reserve games at the end of the season but unfortunately how it used to work back then was you finished the season about end of May early June and you went on a break for about six weeks so it's out like all the football world back then just everybody goes away on holiday and you know you go into sort of like what's known as the pre-season so the phone just didn't ring at all and you know it stopped ringing and then all of a sudden you fell into this void of you know (laughs) what what am I going to do next like I've not got a club at the moment and you know, obviously, in, in back in when I played, there was no agents that could do rigging up for you. So so it ended up me having to do a bit of spade work and contact a few clubs and a, a few uh, managers to see if they'd have a look at me. So it just felt as though you'd just been sort of like left, you know, like 
it's like it felt as all like an empty crisp packet I call it that's my metaphorical explanation where you know once you've done you're done and you walk out of those training um, ground gates for the last time and it's like nobody contacts you anymore it's like you go from hero to zero with a click of the fingers and so it was a real tough challenge to, to sort of get me my career moving and, and to try and stay fit as well because you're not you're not in full-time training you know you you kind of like you need to keep your fitness up because if you did get someone who was interested you need to hit the ground running so so it was a really really strange time and you know even to this day I'm still interested and intrigued with transitions you know with players at all levels coming away from the sport and and just sort of you know just keeping an eye on that that step in relation to you know, mental health and depression because potentially it's a really, really difficult and challenging moment that for an athlete and a sportsman person, you know, it's it's, it's, it's a tough time to deal with. I'll ask one more question. I know that was one more question. I'm going to ask one more and then Nathan can take over it with his questions. Um, did you, did you, did it cross your mind to give up playing football after you were released? Uh, it, it, to be honest with you, Oliver, I don't think it did because, you know, you had the options like, um, do you want to go back into education? You're looking at, you know, like, like a lot of players do. You know, if you think about, again, modern football, if you get released at sort of 17, 18 from your apprenticeship, a lot a lot go on to like um, maybe head to America or, or jump onto a degree programme where the football is a, is a key component of that. But I still feel as though I had like something to offer because I just felt as though the journey had not been finished, it had not been completed. Uh, I still had like, you know, opportunities where I felt I was good enough and you know and, it, and it's like it's it's really strange because you know you think I was playing in the reserves at 15 I was playing um, in the under 18s at 15 I was playing um, I played in the first team first team friendly at 17 for United I made my debut for Exeter at 19 so I was like I, I still had like quite a lot to give so so I think I think coming through that um, I didn't consider giving up, but it was hard. It was hard to get back in, if that makes sense. Because in football, you're very, very quickly forgotten. You know, if, if you look at these, they're called release and retain lists, and, they, and they're, they're issued every summer. There's about 700, 800 names on there. You know, and, and 700, 800 names are not going to get a club, I'm afraid. So it's a real challenge. So, like I say, to this day, I'm still interested in. You know, looking after or thinking about experiences of of players and, and and considering that they should be looked after more in that window where you go from the end of a contract, you know, like into another opportunity. So originally it wasn't straight to Exeter. I believe you you spent a bit of time at Horridge um, RMI. Um, how did that come up? Was that sort of specifically just to get some minutes in? Absolutely, absolutely, Nathan. I was I was kind of just trying to keep fit, really. You know, trying to keep involved and keep playing you know and and just just sort of keep ticking over really so that that was kind of like used as a sort of a platform really that uh, you know while I was still sort of pursuing and, and trying to contact clubs and get sort of an opportunity somewhere it was it was just a way of ticking over really so so that was um, you know like just filling in the void and filling in the bridge from from coming away from United and then maybe try to get back get, get back in somewhere as a pro 
Uh, did you always kind of believe, not that you was too good for the standard, but you always felt like this is not where I'm going to end up when you was playing? Yeah, I think you do. I think once you've played with like a sort of an elite level side for like three, four, five seasons and you sort of come down, it's definitely noticeable in the levels because, you know, like sometimes you get the ball, like I sort of predominantly played at fullback for United. You get like lads and we work on patterns of play and training where you kind of know what the midfielders are going to do and the forwards are kind of, if they come towards the ball, you know they're going to spin into the channel so you could try and clip the ball in there and and you come down a, a level or two and they're kind of like, you get the ball and it's not moving. So it's like, you know, like it doesn't seem to be as as fluid. So that was kind of a sort of a bit of an adjustment. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's like, you know, there's some real, there were some really good players when I sort of arrived at Exeter, like ex-England internationals were in the, in the playing squad. We had like Stevie Williams, who was a great footballer, Steve Moran. Um, you know, they'd all played at a good level. Um, so, so, you know, the adjustment and, and coming down was helped by the standards of, of those types of players. So, yeah, it was a quick turnaround to go to Exeter. I don't believe you was at Horridge all that long. How did that come about? Because obviously that's not, that's pretty far away from, from Manchester and that area. Yeah, so, so what had happened was, um, I think it was... Um, Borley had found out that I'd been released by United. Now, going back in my journey, to when I was 17, I got picked to go and play in like a sort of England representative side in Russia. It was like the centenary of the football league. I think it was a hundred years of the English football league and a hundred years of Russia or something. So they raised this game in Moscow and uh, Alan Ball and a lad called Laurie McMenemy, like old managers, they were like in charge of the party. So I like I went away in that and I was like the youngest player in that squad and I, and he, I was captain and we won 2-1. So like it was like an amazing experience, and then um, I think he'd watched the reserves a few times as well uh, over the time that I'd been at United. So he kind of remembered me for that. So he invited me down there to to sort of like just initially on a short term sort of like let's have a look at you. Um, so I went down. Um, <laughs> I, I always like say this on podcast. I never knew where Exeter was. I've never like heard of it before, you know, because like, and that's no that's no like um, slight on Exeter or anything. I just I just wasn't sure where I was going. So I remember like my dad like put me a map together because there was no sat navs back then in, in those days. It was all um um you know like looking at looking at um in an A to Z like a map situation and and try to plot your route down the motorway. Right. See luckily Exeter's kind of like motorway from where I live. Like um, you go down the M6 for like a long time then you jump on the M5 and it takes you all the way down. So there's luckily there's no like A roads and B roads to jump on. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I arrived down in Exeter. Um, remember jump, coming in, calling into the the um, where the old club shop used to be, and asking for the contact to show me to some digs. And uh, it was really interesting. There was about five, six, seven players in the digs at the time, and and that was it. I was off, ready to try and fight for my life and and try and prove something to somebody. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, an interesting time. I mean, what was that like? You, you know, very young, moving to somewhere that I mean, you didn't know where it was beforehand. So, I mean, how how was that? Uh, tough. You know, it, you know, it's it's like sort of moving, you know, quite a way away from home. But it's like you know, you think about university students. You know, they travel, they travel all over. You know, we, we get we get people coming up from London to come and study in Manchester. We get people over from Ireland to study in Manchester. So. 
So I kind of, it's a, probably a similar transition and experience to, to sort of those types of people. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was a, it was a long way, and I remember like you know we, we've got quite a close family, and you know it, it's almost like you know you're having to move away from parents for this kind of the first time. And me me nana, my late nana was like a little bit upset because you you're always going on this trip and this journey that you know nobody knows when they're nobody knows when they're going to see you again really. You know, you pack all your gear up and your boots and you, you know, all your stuff in a, in a big bag and away you go. I had a little fiesta at the time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really intriguing um, what sticks with you. I remember, um, you know, you guys are very young, but um, on the on the sort of the, the one of the first tracks that, that was playing was called a, a track called Wind of Change by the, the Scorpions. And I thought like that was quite... Uh, you talk about destinies and stuff like that, you know, li- li- listen to the wind of change because I was having a wind of change and, you know, sometimes you get like some little bits and snippets of meaning through music and, you know, to, to this day, 30 years ago, something like that, I can still remember like music playing going down the M6, M5, um, you know, to, to try and sort of get your career moving again and, and try and, try and you know, prove yourself and you know, prove yourself to yourself more than anything and thinking, well, I am good enough, you know, it's just one person's opinion of you, you know, I am a decent footballer, Let, let's see if somebody else can can, can go and, and recognise that. So you made your, your debut against Wigan, I believe, and how, how did you feel that, that day when you were told, right, this is, this is your first game? Brilliant. Um, like, like a lot of other things in life, I think sometimes you need a little bit of luck and, you know, my luck came with a few injuries to the, in, into, the, into the playing squad that week. Um, we had a fullback there back then called Scott Eilid, very, very good player, Scott. He picked up a knock. Um, I think we had about three or four lads who were out and ball. Alan Ball pulled us on the Thursday and said, you're going to be making your debut Saturday. And, uh, you know, it's just very exciting. I'm incredible. I remember the morning turning up, you know, your suit on and and it's like, you're you sort of like, you know, your identity, it's like you it goes to another level because you know you're going to be involved in the first team and playing in the first team in a, in a league game, you know. So, so again, you talk about these experiences of under 18s and reserves. You know, this is a proper league match that you're playing in now. So yeah, so from a a pride and, a, and an excitement and a, and a sort of you know like so pleased with myself that I've managed to get that opportunity. It was uh, one of the great days. But not the result. <laughs> the result didn't go as well as uh, as planned, unfortunately. But so you mentioned working under Alan Ball. I mean, he he's a World Cup winner. Had such a kind of esteemed, very highly esteemed career. How, how was that? Because obviously, sometimes when, when top players struggle to transition into managers, how was what was he like? Yeah, fantastic ball. Very, you know, I've got a lot of time for for Alan Ball, and very very similar to Sir Alex in a way, just mad passion on winning. Um, you know, good football philosophy. You know, you, you drop you drop down the, the league sometimes, Nathan. You get a lot of these managers who just want to play it forwards all the time, and as soon as you get it on at full back, get it into the forwards, and you know, it, like the ball's bouncing off the clouds to get into the area and stuff like that. But the good thing with Ball is he always tried to like in his sessions and his drills that he did. He was always um, it was it was always based on passing and and uh, and possession and retention and playing in little triangles and, you know, so his, his football philosophy was good. But on occasion, he would lose his temper because you've got a World Cup winner here, an elite level player. 
right at the top of his trade. You know, Arsenal, uh, Everton, Southampton, you know, real quality play for England loads of times. And then you're working with leagues sort of, I think it was like the League One equivalent at the time. And they're not, the players are not what he used to be, if that makes sense. So he would be prone to losing his rag quite a lot. And, but, you know, you talk, you, you think of Borley, wow, what an unbelievable play. And we used to have five sides on a Friday morning back then, as, as a lot of the, um, the, uh, the culture did, you know, Friday morning used to be, used to call it like a little razz, used to have like England would play the rest of the world in a five-a-side competition or you get Youngens v Oldens or, and uh, Borley used to join in and uh, he was about, must have been about late 40s, 47, 48, two or three stone overweight, probably not played for many years and he used to run the show <laughs> and you used to look at him and you think, my word, if you know you're doing this here, like his little one touches and his little, you know, his, his brain's ticking so quick. And you think to yourself, if you can do that now here, what you like when you was properly fit, you know, and, and it's like, you know, you look at someone like that and you think, wow. But um, yeah, he gave me my league debut ball, and you know, he, I had a lot of time for him and, and I, I love playing. It's something I'm very proud of, you know, about one representing Exeter in the football league. And two, like having it under Alan Ball, a World Cup winner who gives you your debut, you know, like great memories. So, so when you look back at your, your whole time at Exeter, what was kind of your best memory playing for playing for the club? Yeah, there's there's about two or three that stand out. I think the, the one that probably the main one is like I've spoke before about this is like the, we played Plymouth Argyle, like the local derby. And um, Ball, had had all the, all the players wound up all week and he was just highlighting the importance to the fans. You know, he was saying, like, I've played in Liverpool, Everton, um, Arsenal, Spurs, uh, Southampton, Portsmouth. And he said, I know how much this means to the to the, to the the group of people who come following you week in, week out. And he said, he said, we'll be tidy. Anybody lets me down, um, you know, you'll have me to answer for. And uh, all week, what he'd been doing, he'd identified that Plymouth had, like, a danger man called Warren Joyce. Warren's at Salford City at the moment. as like the assistant manager or, like, the, the youth development manager. And uh, Borley had sort of tried to sign Warren uh, from Stoke City, I think, or for Stoke City when Borley were there. So he knew he was a good player. And he said, like, your job is just to follow Warren Joyce everywhere. He doesn't get a kick. Um, that's your role, man-marking job. So so from <laughs> from the first minute, I was just ratting at him. His ankles were getting smashed. And every time the ball came in, I was trying to sort him out. But... Well, the great the great thing with Ball is he said like as soon as you get a chance go and play as well you know don't just be following him everywhere you know if if we break or we have a chance around the edge of the area go and play so on the first goal that we scored I'd managed to sort of find a bit of space on the left hand side I think it was uh, Scott Daniels who played the ball back to me I managed to find a decent cross in and Pete Wisson did the first goal and so so it's a really nice assist and um, I just wrote an article for the senior Reds uh, supporters group from Exeter. And I, I sort of just spoke about that game and how it panned out. And out of nowhere, out, out, a bolt from the blue, one of the fans said, I've got that on tape in the attic. I'll, I'll put it on a DVD for you and send over. So hopefully, any moment now, dropping through the pole, should be a recording of that of that game that I, I played in. So that, that'll be really exciting. I'll try and cut some stuff out of that. Um, yeah. Um, the second game that I was involved with was really exciting. It was when Scott Isler scored his hat-trick at Reading away. That, that was a fantastic occasion. Um, we had loads of Grecians behind the goal on, on that occasion. And just 
you know, to see that Scott nod his hat trick in and all the crowd, I think all the crowd jumped on the fence and like the police getting involved and stuff like that. It's like a real buzz. It's amazing. And, and you know, you talk about the passions of football and the supporters and the players like all as one. You know, that, that was like um, like really special as well. And the final the final one is like my first league goal against Stockport County. That was amazing as well. You know, and it's like, you know, when you score and, and you sort of wheel away and you sort of jump up and give it that and all the players are on you and, you know, that's a massive thrill as well. And, uh, you know, that's it with football. You know, they, they give you these experiences that are very unique. And, and what it is, it's like a drug. You, you, want, you want that all the time. You want to be scoring goals every week. You want to be playing well every week. You want to be celebrating with the fans every week. But unfortunately... There's like a lot more ups in foot, a lot more downs in football than there are ups. So I suppose one of the things that I regret the most is maybe really enjoying, really enjoying and, and making the most of these times because that's it in football. It, it's over so quick. You know, you click your fingers. If you're lucky, you get to 35, 36 and you play 500, 600, 700 games. But unfortunately, there's, there's not a lot. There's only a handful of people who manage to do that. You know, you're more likely to be moved on, deselected, injuries, uh, poor poor dressing room relationships. You don't get on with everybody, so you're not happy. Poor coaching and manager relationships, so you don't get on with those and they're leaving you out and not talking to you. And there's a there's a lot more downs in football than there are ups. And you know, I think I think those downs really, really test your resilience. But but when the ups come there's, there's nothing better. I mean, you guys as well, you know, as if you play the game yourself and supporters, there's nothing better is than, than your team getting a last-minute winner somewhere. And, you know, it's, 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 it's like, it's just a, like exhilarating, isn't it? It's like a real, a real high. And that's, that's why loads and loads of people are so interested in football, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I can speak from, from experience being an Exeter fan. Some of the nights on the Big Bank, especially the Carlisle one, will come to mind. That was just unreal. Yeah, but what, obviously, X is in quite a, quite a good state now in terms of facilities and, and the finances of the club, as compared to even ten years ago, fifteen years ago, when you was there. What what was it, what was it like with like St James's Park and the training ground? Yeah, they, well, it was still we were still at the, the is it is it still called the Cliff Hill training ground now? So we used to call it the Cat and Fiddle back then. We train at the Cat and Fiddle Exeter. Um, I, th- I think there was a pub down the road. I don't know if it's still there. Yeah, the cat of still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, yeah. Honestly, I, I keep saying to like some of the lads and you know the the guys who do the um, uh, the social media stuff at Exeter. I will come back one day. I've, when I left Exeter, I think it was about ninety seven, ninety eight. I fully moved on and come back to the north. I've never been back since. Um, so I think I'm more than due to to go and have a look. And when I see the ground, I probably won't be able to recognise it. You know, like because of all the stands on there and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, the, the, cat, the cat and fiddle was like a nice training facility. Um, it was only basic. Um, it was like, I tend to remember, it used to have like a bit of water loggy problems in certain areas of it. So if we had like really, really bad downpours and re- a real lot of rain, it'd all like be massive puddles. Because I remember if there was a forfeit or you'd lost your five side, you had to dive into the puddles like first, head first. So. Um, but now I think they've put like a nice AstroTurf on there now, haven't they? And, you know, some, some of the pitches are still in the, the sort of similar area from from what I've seen on the on like some of the uh, the footage from, from games that have been played on there. And St. James's as well, yeah, um, used to have like the big bank, as you said. Um, at the top of the big bank, I can't remember, there used to be like, um, I'm not too sure if it was like a little police room or a media room or something like that. 
that was kind of right on the top of it. And then on the sort of like, you know, you come out the tunnel and you look straight in front of you like you had like something called the cow shed. So that was all like sort of the, the affectionate name under there. And then I think that the away end was uncovered, wasn't it? There was there was no sort of, there was no covering on that. And then just the, the stand, which I think has been developed, hasn't it? Like a brand new main stand now. So, so yeah, so great, great memories from there and great times. And, uh, you know, I, I went to Exeter uh, 91 and I think I come, like I say, I come back up north about 97. So I had five, six, seven years at Exeter and I absolutely really, really enjoyed my time down there. A fantastic city. And so it sounds bizarre, it's because I've never been back, but I'm really looking forward to, to travelling back down there. And last one from me, obviously, we'll touch on what you've done after after your career and how, how your career came to a, came to an end. But but you're still involved with Exeter, so partly when, when you do the BBC Radio Dev and things like that. I mean, what's what's that like? Just going being able to go to games and watch Exeter and seeing the progress. Yeah, fantastic. You know, again, like anything else in life, you know, things just come out of nowhere. When I was back up in the northwest, um, I've been doing something on Radio Manchester called Red Wednesday. And they get like an old United player on, like an ex-player. And it's just basically an hour with a couple of fans just to discuss um, what the weekend's games are like, who's in form at the moment, any transfer rumours, um, what's happening in the club, etc, etc. So that, that was really good. I really, really used to enjoy that. So anyway, just out of the blue, um, the lad who was at, at Radio Manchester, um, who's kind of like, you know, well up there, like head of sport, Bill Rice, he gave me, he, he phoned me on... on um, I think I was just heading home from work. And he said, he said, um, Radio Devon have been on the phone, Exeter are playing Macclesfield Town. Do you know anybody in the area who could maybe do some summary work or do, you know, a little bit of co-coms or, you know, whatever it is. So Bill said, I've put your name forward to Alan Richardson. Uh, and I said, oh, brilliant, cheers. Well, so Alan phoned us and said, you know, will you, you, you go to Macclesfield and, you know, just watch the game. So, well, like anything else, Nathan, I don't, I don't know what's coming. I've never really done any radio work before. And, um, you know, and you just get into grips with some of the players and, you know, the, the skills and the qualities and, you know, what they're good at. And you're getting getting better at that. And so from the Macclesfield game, you know, most times at Exeter now are in the north or they come up to play in a, in a region. So about an hour and a half to two hours. Um, he'll drop me a mail and says, you know, we 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 jump on and do the summary for us. So I've had like, I've done Scunthorpe, Grimsby, um, I've got um, I've got Port Vale coming up. Um, I've got um, hopefully hopefully I'll be doing Bolton at the end of the season. So it's a it's a real shame because for the last uh, few months since we've been in lockdown, the BBC have been really funny and said that you know. Importantly, you're not allowed to go out your area. They've been they've been kind of um, not not funny. That's the wrong word. More protective um, to say that you can't travel. So I've missed on quite I've missed out quite a few games. You know, in relation to when they've been been up like, I would have done Scunthorpe last week. Um, I think they've got Oldham coming up uh, next week. So it's a shame, but but yes, yeah, it's, it's something it's something that I've really enjoyed and something that I really enjoy doing and. And, um, you know, from that, I've done, um, I managed to, to do the Man United Watford FA Cup game for Radio Manchester in January. So, so it's something that I'm keen to maybe do a little bit more of, you know, like time um, uh, forgiving, you know, like to, to sort of pick that up somewhere. And, um, you know, you, the, good, the good thing with League Two at the moment is there's quite a lot of Northern teams in it. But 
we'd like Exeter to go into League One, so you know you, you can't have it both ways. But so <laughs> already I've been having a look in League One to see what the Northern teams up, and I've been trying to work it all out. And I've been going, well, if Exeter do miss out, I hope they don't. But if they did, you know maybe Wigan and Rochdale might get relegated from League One and come into League Two. So it gives you more opportunity to get involved with that. But oh, I've really enjoyed it. And, you know, it's been a pleasure. You know, a lot of the games that I've seen Exeter have done brilliantly well. You know, they've picked up draws, they've picked up wins and they've done some great performance. I think they they, they smashed Grimsby to bits. Um, I think it was either 4-0 or 5-0, could have been 10. You know, come up to Crew Alexander, who were top of the league at the time, get a point, but Exeter play them off the park. Uh, Macclesfield, late winner, 3-2, Ryan Bowman. You know, that was a thrill and really exciting. So, uh, so it's, I think he's got some good stuff going, man. And I think, I think if he can... Just get he's, he's so deserving this kind of squad of getting it over the line. They keep getting to the playoffs and not quite doing it. You know, they've had like playoffs about two or three years on the bounce, haven't they? Not quite got over the line, yeah. and it's so close, but it's getting competitive at the top of the league at that league, too. So, we're gonna have to be it's gonna have to take something special to you know to keep that run going and, and maybe have a chance of doing it. Yeah, I think that obviously we all hope Hex get that, please. <laughs> Hopefully, we, we will one day. Yeah, and then that, I think that's also the perfect transition into into Kieran's section of the talking about your injuries and career. So, thank uh, thank you, Nathan. I think it's it's fair to say that League Two, uh, at the best of times, especially this season with no fans, is very uh, unpredictable, um, to say the least. Just just going back to your time with with Exeter, which was kind of abruptly cut short at one moment where you, you suffered an unfortunate injury. Can would you be able to just kind of talk us through? that moment or, or the lead up to that moment if if anything happened that you noticed prior to the moment where you realised that it was quite serious? Yeah, it was a bit it was a bit of a strange one, Kieran, really. I'd, I'd kind of been playing with something that I knew wasn't right, but because my contract was running out and because I thought that, you know, I, I needed to try and get another contract because, you know, I want to stay in football, I don't want to be moving on again. You, you're kind of like ignoring it and just sort of like trying to get by, but it was steadily getting worse and worse and I remember, I think it was uh, Swansea City away. Um, it was really sore, and I've been selected to play on that night. And I said to my mate, like Dave Cooper, who was at the time, like, do you think, you know, I, I'm struggling, Coops, I can't, I can hardly move here. So he went, he said, you can't really tell Bali now because like, we're here at the ground, Every, all the kits are laid out and all that. He said, it's going it, to, it'll, it'll like wreck his plans because he's set his team up. And if you go to him like 45 minutes before kickoff and saying your back's hurting, you know, it's going to like, sort of like, mess everything up. So I thought, oh my God. So I got a load of deep heat on my hands and rubbed it all over my back and just thought, I'm just going to have to try and get on with it. Anyway, I played that game and it wasn't long after where I had to go and see the physio at the time, Mick Chapman. And I said to Mick, um, I'm struggling, Mick. I need to, I need to, for someone to have a look at this for us. So he sent me to French A Hospital in Bristol to have an MRI scan. And it was a surgeon called Mr. Stephen Gill at the time. He said, like, your back's in a right mess, he said. He says, you've got a piece of bone missing that's worn away. He said, all the bottom of your spine's, like, collapsed a little bit. So all the pins and needles that you're getting is when, like, you're moving and, like, it's your, it's your kind of your, your spinal t- um, uh, touching against your, your nerves and things like that. So I'm thinking, oh, my God. And he said one bad tackle on that in any other game. He said, that could have severed your, your spinal cord. And he said, you would have been in a mess. And, you know, it's like a wheelchair job you're talking about. So it, it kind of hits home, like you trying to be brave and things like that, when really that was just just silly and stupid. So 
so anyway, I went into hospital. Um, I had some metal work put in. I took screws and plates inserted into the bottom of my back. I was only 22 at the time. And um, and I come back to Exeter, started my rehab three or four months down the line. I was still getting pins and needles, so I had to have to go back in again, have more surgery. And um, it got to the end of that, and I thought, this is going to be tough to come back of. Not from a physical perspective, well, that's one part of it, but from a mental perspective as well, because I thought, if I go up for a cross or like someone knees me in the back or you're going for a tackle where someone boots, like gets right in the bottom of your back or something, but I don't fancy that. So it was kind of like, I'm going to have to seriously think about, you know, training all the time, full time and, and playing full time. I don't know if I'm going to be up for it. Um, so that that was the situation and, and I managed to, you know, I had to transition out of football, unfortunately. That, that was that, that was my career finished. I think I was only about 23 and a half at the time, done all over. And you mentioned there about it kind of being mentally difficult for an in-game situation where you're kind of worried about your, your back. Obviously, spending so much time on the sidelines, watching on, how did you kind of cope with, with that during your recovery, which was quite extensive? Yeah, very, very, very tough game because you're isolated from what's going on. You're not part of it. You're you're basically working with the physio every day and doing strength work and weights. And then, you know, you might send you off for some swimming and then come back and then all the lads are going out training and you're not part of match days. And, and what it was like back then is like a lot of managers, they didn't really want injured players around the dressing room and around the team because... You know, they've got other things to concentrate on. They've got to concentrate on winning games and getting points on the board. And the last thing you want is someone with the sort of face on and, you know, almost like the downturn lips in the dressing room because they're not playing like on crutches or they don't want that. So it, it was really tough. And um, I think it's the sort of the isolation really that, that really um, you struggle with in relation to your mental health because you, you've had all this excitement and all this kind of, um, opportunity to be involved and play in the first team. It's not there anymore. So there's almost like a void and it, it's like things start rushing in to fill that void, if that makes sense. So you, you're spending a little bit more time in the pub than you should be. Your diet's kind of gone a little bit AWOL. You might be betting and gambling a little bit more than you should be. It's just to try and keep your spirits upbeat. But that's the totally the wrong thing to do because you're not growing or developing in any way. You just you're just wasting your time. So that was kind of like what I fell into for a year or two, and you end up putting a lot of weight on, and it's harder then to come back. And you know, it, it just takes on a down dip. And I I think all I can relate it to is just because it's like it's almost like an involuntary transition. I didn't decide to transition out of football. It wasn't my choice. And it was kind of like, it's been put, put on you. And it's like, you come out of football and you're like lost. And you're thinking like, what do I do next? I'm not qualified in anything else. So that was like a really tough time for about three or four years after that to try and get myself back on track again. So, um, so yeah, that, that was like difficult moments that. And then just sort of moving forward a little bit to, to where you are now, where you have been for several years now in terms of, teaching finding a way to remain in sport kind of how did that come about for you I remember you mentioned that you were someone who quite enjoyed school so was that an element yeah. of that you wanted to go back into education and then kind of advance in in that area going forward yeah yeah because yeah, when, when I come out of football I was like a funny age I was like 24 uh, football I don't know all I'd known when I was at United Apprentice I'd done a BTEC national in sport 
so you got to 18, but then you kind of like your qualifications stopped. Um, so then, because you, you've gone into your football career, um, so so I got to 24, and then I, need, I needed sort of something to do. I needed to bring like some wages in. So I, it's just kind of like trying to find work, you know, like van driving, you know, things that you kind of like, you know, stereotypically can earn a few wages in warehouse work, you know, packing stuff like loading lorries, you know, that sort of stuff, and and it. Up until sort of the 28, I kind of like thought oh, it's something that I've never really considered. You know, like going back to to university to sort of do a degree. Um, so it was, I don't know where it come from. It might have even been a family member. It might have even been like my pair, one of my parents that said like, "Have you not fancied like you know building on your education again and, and doing sort of something that you know part time or studying?" So I thought, well. It sounds a good idea. So I went into University of Bolton. It was called Bolton Institute back then. I spoke to somebody about courses and they said, well, obviously you've got quite a strong background and affinity with sport. Um, do you not you fancy doing a degree in sports science? Um, so I said, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll give it a go. So so I went to university and I think the first couple of weeks it was really tough, like, like a lot of students. You know, I, I wasn't sure whether it was the right choice because... Um, you know, a university is quite challenging. There's lots of things to read and there's lots of terminology and there's lots of difficult uh, ways of doing things. You know, like obviously you're expected to write work in a certain way. And um, I think the first week or two, I come back and I, I can't remember. I think I remember saying, it might have been to one of my parents. Like, I don't know if this is for me, this, you know, like staying on it. And I was close to sort of like sort of thinking of maybe looking for something else, but... You know, sometimes it's hard to explain that little voice inside here says, you know, go and give it another week. And I remember going back and doing a lecture again. I think it was on something called somatotypes, you know, body composition, uh, mesomorph, endomorph, ectomorph. And, and I kind of got that. I understood all that. And if, if that lesson had been particularly difficult that morning, if it had been very scientific or we'd looked at something like, you know, the way the heart and lung operates or... Um, we might have looked at metabolic rate or something like that. I might have thrown the cards and said, oh, I, I can't continue with this. It's confusing me. It's baffling me and I don't understand it, etc., etc." So, so yeah, stuck at it. I got a 2-1. You know, I'm proud of myself for that. So I got a degree in that. And then again, just coming to the end of that kind of experience is like, like a lot of young students, you know, what do I do now? You know, what are you looking to do? But so what I saw is I, I enjoyed like the lectures. I like listening to lectures. I thought they were very professional, the way they did things. And, and suddenly, like, you start sort of seeing yourself maybe a little bit that. Your future maybe becomes a little bit clearer. You can start seeing something that maybe you could do. So I did, a, I jumped onto a PGCE. So I did a year of teacher training and, um, you know, got through that, got into placements, you know, delivering sports courses and coaching stuff and sports science. And I, I really enjoyed that, working with young people. And then from that, it kind of sort of transitioned. I got a job at a college. I was there for 11 years, you know, delivering A-levels, B-tech, sports stuff. Brilliant, really, really good. And then within the college, they had like foundation degrees as well. So they were higher education qualifications. So I got involved with that. Uh, and then from then, I kind of transitioned and went to UCFB. Uh, I've been working there for the last five years. So I've, it's coming into like 17 years of teaching now. And it's, that's gone in an instant as well. You click your fingers and, and that's moved forwards. Um, and I, I, it's something I really enjoy, you know. I'm getting older. I'm getting older and dafter and cranky, and you know I'm nearly fifty now. I'm I'm fifty at my next birthday. So, so with my teaching and with my little bits of radio work, and 
I'm trying to do a little bit of writing at the moment and put a, a little book together called From Red to Red. So from Red United to Red, getting a degree and sort of trying to bring in a few stories that maybe people have not heard from the Fergie days and the Alan Ball days and, and the mental health stuff and transitioning out of football. So I'm just trying to pen that together at the moment. And, and just trying to keep my hands in and different different things. I think one thing that I've learned from my football that I days and that is just try and keep your identity as broad as you can. You know, try different things out and do different things, and um, you know, and try and enrich yourself in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that would be a, a brilliant insight, brilliant, brilliant read. Um, just lastly, Ali, I'm just slightly wary of the the time and stuff. I just from your perspective as well. I think this is quite a good embodiment of how important it is to have a backup plan um, if you're a footballer. What kind of would you say to those people who are who are playing um, but then on the side maybe going for a degree as well? How helpful would you say that is to have that plan if things do go slightly south? Yeah, I, th- I think me, me, to be honest with you, um, uh, Kira, I think my views have changed on that quite a bit because when I was a young player, I probably wouldn't like you, know, you would have got different advice off me. But because of my experiences, you know, the, the number one from a lot of young people, a lot of young players, football players, is to get a full and enriched career. Absolutely. And if you do that, you know, it's fantastic. And, you know, you, you've got, you get great plaudits off me because I know that the game's not easy. There's a lot of challenge in there. There's a lot of difficult moments, a lot of difficult times. But, I think the more older I've got and the more I've reflected and thought about it, I don't see there's any reason why you can't enrich yourself in other ways too. If you're lucky enough to be a Premier League footballer, you're probably enriching yourself in different ways, such as maybe running a business on the side. You're not fully running the business, but having people run it for you. you know, a lot of elite level footballers have got restaurants, they've got uh, cafes, they've got different, different business interests, which is brilliant. So, so that, that, that sort of top-end stuff. But I think as you drop down the leagues and the football pyramid, as you come down into League One, League Two, then you know, the non-leagues, National League, National League North, etc. There's no reason why you can't do something else alongside, you know, whether that's an academic route, you know, maybe studying for a degree in something that, that interests you. Uh, maybe that, you know, picking up your coaching awards and maybe doing some coaching in the community when you, you've got a bit of free time in an afternoon, you know, maybe go and work with different groups and then, and, and different um, age groups in there, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't do that. Because I, I, I know football's your profession, of course it is, and, you know, the gaffer will probably saying, shall I don't say that, we need to rest in the afternoon. But to me, like footballers, if it's like it was when I played, you've got a lot of free time and, you know, there's only so much uh, stuff you can do with that free time, you know. It, Back in my day, your free time was probably a danger time because you started going to pubs and bookies and, you know, it wasn't constructive. But I think free time now in the modern way, in the modern game, should be really spent developing yourself. You know, some players might say, you know, they might say, well, in the afternoons, you might get an opportunity to review some of your performances. Like the the analysts might send you some clips of your last game through an email or something or via social media that you can go and have a look through and a play through and, you know, do some learning in that way. So, so I think my advice would be, Kim, just to enrich yourself as much as you can. You know, football, it's broken into person and player, really. Um, you know, the player side is obviously really important, but you've got, like, another identity, if that means, other identities around that. 
And I think I think one of the major problems in sport, elite level sport, certainly in professional football, is is a lot of players which you need. You've got a very very strong football identity, but the problem with that is you kind of give up other things that really you should be doing. Now that's great. Football identities are needed because you need to have dedication. You need to give it your all. You need to enjoy what you're doing, and you need to put the work in. I, I get all that, but. The worry is, is if your athletic identity lets you down, which it does a lot of the time because of deselection and injury and, you know, things that sometimes are out of your control, it's worrying then what happens in relation to the other side that you need, like, something else to do. So, um, so I would always say develop the player, of course, but you need to sort of think about the person behind the player as well and, and developing those sort of skills. So... So when you do have to come out of the game, because we all have to do it at one stage, hopefully the transition won't be as difficult as what I had, and you can, you know, you can not smoothly go over because you're giving up a playing career, but it'll be a lot more easier than four or five years before you move on to something else. And mm. I just wanted to touch as well on I saw somewhere your work as a mental health ambassador. I think now more in the 21st century, it's becoming a lot more prevalent. A lot more people are speaking openly about it, which of course is is amazing to see. How did that sort of come about for you and kind of what does it involve? Yeah, it's, it's always something I've been interested in really. It was just, it's just a, a lad contacted me from, uh, I think it was on social media actually, like would I be an ambassador for this mental health FA? Um, so, you know, I, I, I did that and, you know, anything that I can use or speak out about in relation to experiences and coming out of the game and, you know, since I've been um, doing my educational journey I've, I've also picked up different qualifications I've done one in psychotherapy I've done a qualification in counselling um, and I, I've kind of like sort of in, in invested a lot of time writing a PhD as well in relation to player support in mental health and well-being and thinking about you know what is it that players need in that environment to flourish and to and to make sure that we can try and you know, help with the mental health difficulties that, that a lot of people, not you know, not just footballers, but right across society, that are, are suffering with it in in this um, in this modern world that we live in. You know, so so in relation to, to that, it's it's always something that I've, I've I've had like a sort of an interest in. Mm-hmm. And just just one final one from me on that, in terms of teaching and, and lecturing and things like that, is it is it fair to say that your own experiences that you've had in the game have, have massively helped it you when it comes to kind of relaying that information to others and teaching? I, th- I think it helps from the applied side so you can draw off previous experiences and you can bring things to life sometimes I think that helps but but like anything else Kieran you know it's, it's about I was probably terrified when I first went into a into a classroom you know to deliver a BTEC session you know it I remember, um, you know, because we're, we're all learning, I was learning at the time and you, you go in and you've got your lesson plan and you've got all your material, but because you're quite anxious and nervous, you tend to rush through things quite a bit and you think I've got the slots nine till half ten in this and you get to ten to ten and you're thinking and you, your self-talk's going on in your mind and you're thinking, oh my God, I've run out of, I've run out of all the activities and the materials we've done, what am I going to do for 40 minutes? So, so like anything else, I think you get better at stuff and you can time things and you and I think that confidence comes in relation to working with people and allowing them a little bit of time to think and do some pair work and some group work and feeding back and I think you can manage your time a little bit better and 
you know, that's that's kind of one thing that, that I kind of learned from from lecturing and teaching. And, and like anything else, you know, it, we're all we're all on learner journeys. We're all ongoing, even though you're qualified in something. There's like new technology coming in, new IT, new ways of doing things. Social media is booming. So I think it's trying to tap into and keep abreast of, you know, what some of the younger learners are there, what they expect when they come into HE and what, and what they want offer uh, a degree course in relation to the, the content and the delivery and the way that things are done. You know, it's a lot different to when I was a young lad. When I was a lad, it sounds a bit crazy, that, doesn't it? But it was it was all blackboard and chalk. You know, the teachers would write stuff on the blackboard and you'd open a book and it's a reader passes and you've got to answer the 10 questions at the end of it. So, like, learning's evolved and all changed now. And um, so, so you... You know, it's just it's just keep keeping abreast and keeping like keeping on top of that, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you very much for the, the insight into those answers. I know uh, Ollie has a few kind of off-topic questions. I imagine that he'd like to ask, so I'll, I'll hand it uh, back over to him. Um, so yeah, just a couple more questions. I won't keep you for too much longer. I know we've been here for a while already, but first of all, where do you think your career would have gone if you didn't actually get an injury? I know that's a big statement to sort of say like, and yeah. stuff like that, but where do you think you actually would have ended up? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. I think the dreams, I think for a lot of players who've kind of started off high, gone low, it's to come back high again, isn't it? Uh, a couple of examples, Robbie Savage, United, played in the class of 92, got released, went to Crew, and then ended up back in the Premier League. So there's like a sort of a journey. Um, I think there was an old player, I don't know if you guys will remember him, but he was an England international called David Platt. Uh, played in sort of some of the, the World Cups in the early years, but I think David Platt got released from United as a kid, 18, went to Crew, similar to Robbie Savage, ended up captain in England. Or Jamie Vardy, we mentioned earlier on in the podcast. Ian Wright, we mentioned earlier on in the podcast. So, so there is examples of kind of high to low to high, but you know, maybe just to sort of like uh, stay in, you know, Exeter. I would have enjoyed, I enjoyed it there. You know, maybe to get you know more appearances, more goals. You know, stayed in that club for a, a long time. You know, especially if you feel as though you're wanted there or you're rated, because ultimately that's what it's all about. It's whether. Uh, you have an affinity for the club and whether the manager wants you there and you know it's, it's nice to be wanted isn't it you know that's what that's what a lot of players want so so maybe maybe you know if it had worked out but it wasn't my destiny Oliver that's it it wasn't meant to be so we're, we're here talking about a slightly different route and a slightly different story obviously you did get injured and this this could be a bit far-fetched with me saying this so uh, it's just a odd question um you say you haven't returned to Exeter since you obviously left and your injury. Do you think that might be because of maybe the connotations that you left with getting injured? Or is it just something that just hasn't happened? Yeah, yeah uh, could, could be. Um, I've never really thought about uh, that for some angle. There might be some, you know, almost like, what, what do they call it? There's like a sort of a story that's not been finished yet and you don't want to, you know, maybe there's a bit of anxiety or fear going back into an environment that, that's sort of like, that, that um, was such a, a disappointing one to finish on. You know, maybe you've resisted and thought, well, I'm okay doing what I'm doing at the moment. I don't want to evoke any uh, emotions that are kind of still dormant or, you know, that are in you that are still alive if they, if they kind of uh, may come to the sort of the, the surface if I went down there. But 
it's going to have to be done sooner or later. I'm going to have to face up to it because I want to go back and just sort of, you know, I've got such great memories there and such an enjoyable time. It would be really good just to to go and have a look at the training ground and maybe ca catch a game down there, you know, maybe have a few jars after or something brilliant. Uh, jobs are good. And Pop back to the pub that you said you quite often went to. <laughs> yeah, to be honest with you, I don't know if it's still there or not in Exeter, uh, the Barley Mo. Um, Bar the Barley Mo pub? Yeah, yeah. Now that's gone. That's literally just down the road from where I live. I literally live on the road, but it's gone now. It's turned into a co-op. Yeah, what a shame. What a shame because I remember there, this is just out of my imagery now. It was kind of on a crossroads, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So right, at the, right at the bottom of the panel was a really big hill to get up to, wasn't there? Like, you used to climb yeah. up there. And then out the Barley Mall, there's like a little row of shops with like, a, there was a Willie Hills on the end of it. That's um, still there. Yeah, William Hills and like, I think there was, um, you know, like a news agent or something. And then there was like a China a Chinese takeaway on that end of the row. And then there was like a little phone box that you kind of used to drop down to that was outside of the pub. So yeah, all changed, all, all different, all different bits and pieces. But I had, um, I used to go in something called the Valiant Soldier as well. I think it was on Cowick Street. Um, is, is that right? The Valiant? I don't, doesn't ring a bell. I think probably been for a few rebrands rebrand since. Yes. Yeah. And I used to have, um, I used to love it down on the quayside as well. That was beautiful down there. Um, do you still like a couple of old nightclubs? Well, these they'll, they'll probably be long gone now. Uh, one was called Vaults Nightclub, um, and then was it the Port Royal? Was that is that still down on the quay? Yeah, that rings a bell. I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. it is. Yeah, the Port Royal pub because you used to used to sort of like where all the flats were at one end. There was like sort of a few bars and clubs there, and then you wandered down the kind of the the um, the quayside, and you come to it like you winded up and come to another pub on the left. I think that's there. Definitely rings yeah, a bell. Yeah. I feel like my yeah. dad something. So yeah, I think it is there. Brilliant. Yeah, lovely place. And like I say, that I'd be nice to sort of visit these places and, and stir up some memories. Like you know, really, but the cathedral was beautiful, wasn't it? Or oh, beautiful in Exeter. Uh, it's really nice. And like when when we sort of family used to come down on occasions to watch games and, and sort of stay for the weekend, they they loved Exeter as well. So uh, I've got some really really nice memories there. Very strange that you said the Barley Mo. I literally have five second yeah. walk out from there but um my next question my penultimate question i only have one more after this I'll, if anyone else wants to ask them i'll give them the stage um is just talking about the current managers obviously you've you've touched on um x city but what about man united what about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? what are your views on him obviously some people want him to stay some people want him to go what do you think yeah i think i think it's a bit of a mix really i think um the supported base seems to be a bit split at the moment but my view, I think he's done well. Um, you know, you look at his records, like they've won plenty of games. And I think the elusive trophy is the big one for Ollie. If they can get that over the line, I think that it's like Fergie, isn't it? Almost like you talk about history repeating itself. You know, maybe there was questions over Sir Alex from 86 to 90. He got an FA Cup over the line and then they went on to like 1991 European Cup Winners' Cup and then picked the Premier League up 92-93 uh, season. And then it just boomed from there. So I think it's like light in the blue touch paper. I think once that first trophy is delivered, success can buy you time. But at the moment, I think a few people are still a bit sceptical on whether he's the man for the job. But I think he's done okay so far. And I think, like I say, you look at the record, I think the data reads quite well. You know, if you say like whatever it is, played um, a substantial amount of games, he's won quite a substantial amount of games. There's been a few draw, a few horrible losses in there. Semi-finals, I think they lost three last season, which was really disappointing. Um, but 
I think I think the chances are that he's going to sign a new contract. I think that's been sort of reported in the media all these last few days. But I think he deserves a little bit more time because he's like it's like anything else. You know, jobs take time to sort of sow in your harvest and then reaping the harvest. It doesn't happen overnight. You had to bring some players in, and um, so I think he's doing okay. So I'm pro- you know I'm probably in the Ollie in camp at the moment. I know a lot though. A lot of United fans are in the Ollie out, unfortunately. So. That's what the game's all about. It's all opinions and views, isn't it? So, you know, you pay your money and take your choice. I'm in I'm in the Ollie in camp as well. I mean, as you said earlier, you said there was a, if I remember rightly, you said there was people with like chanting about Fergie being out when he first came and then look what happened with him. So I know mo- modern football has moved on and you don't have that sort of time anymore that Fergie was given. But I do think that Ollie personally is going down the right tracks. But from one controversial thing to the other, um, I'm not sure if you looked at it, you probably didn't. But last week we talked about VAR. Yeah. Uh, it can't obviously you're an expert below we have to talk about VAR in one instance or not what's your views on that again it, it's split Ollie isn't it you've got you've got the you've got the correct decision getting made haven't you so from a factual perspective it's accurate but it's it's creating havoc isn't it in relation to flow like lads girls are scoring goals now you know you want to celebrate and then it's like one, I've got to go to VAR and oh no and it, it's fans as well isn't it like you want to go yes and jump out you know brilliant and then oh, oh VAR check alright just wait a minute five a few minutes or oh, they're given the goal it's like the fans are not really the same again are they? it's like it, it ruins the moment so so the argument in camp factual it's accurate there's a lot of money in the Premier League you know if you miss out on relegation by a decision that went wrong it can cause carnage but from the game itself from the fans and from the players scoring goals, it's disrupted that, hasn't it? So, so again, you know, it's either an in or an out on that on that respect. So I think I think some of the decisions as well need to be looked at. On the, you've got basically toenails being offside, you've got fingernails being offside, and that that's harsh, isn't it? So maybe maybe the 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 stakeholders, you know, the football league, the Premier League, you know. They'll look at the, the football association. Sorry, the Premier League. They'll, they'll look at this and see. You know, is there something we can do over the pre-season where it's like a little bit more clear cut in relation to to VAR decisions? Because uh, when VAR first came in, I thought it was like just for clear cut errors. You know, like where there, there'd been an error. But now it's like fingernails, isn't it? So it's like for me, it's kind of changed its shape a little bit from the original. It's just been brought into check penalties or handballs or you know or fouls in the area. It's just checking like, you know, it's minute to everything now. It's, it's, to, it's just tiny percents, isn't it? So um, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, a lot of fans are probably not very happy with it at the moment, are they? That's exactly what we said. It technically is factually true what's going on, but at the end of the day, it's kind of ruining the sport in many yeah. opinions. Thank you for coming on. It's been great. A massive insight into sort of the life of an actual footballer and seeing sort of the life that they have afterwards. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, I'm sure. No Enjoyed it, Oliver. Thanks for inviting me on. And, and you know, keep well done to you guys as well. Your, your questions were great there. And uh, I've, I've really enjoyed answering like some of your sort of stuff that you've thought about and, and, uh, and, and put over. So, you know, well done to you. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, but thank you to you anyway for coming on. Um, you didn't have to do it. And I know we've taken up quite a bit of time. Um, so thank you, yeah, for coming on. It's been great. Cheers. No problem. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Thank you.